Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell makes his predictions about the midterm elections, what he's saying and the latest in key races. Legal analysis of the FBI's raid on former President Trump's home. What a former chief counsel to Senator Chuck Grassley has to say. Religious servicemen exposing the military leadership to Congress. In a report, they say officials denied their right to refuse vaccines and they want an investigation. The government plans to stop paying for COVID treatments. Soon, insurers will have to foot the bill. Philadelphia's mayor funding abortions. Citizens say he can't use tax dollars for that. And now they're suing him. And Michael Jordan's 1998 NBA Finals journey jersey could soon be yours. But the uniform top, which he wore in Chicago's Game 1 loss, is expected to fetch a hefty price. A British ISIS terrorist was sentenced to life in prison today for his role in the kidnapping and deaths of four Americans and several others. He was handed down eight concurrent life sentences in a Virginia courtroom on the eighth anniversary of the brutal beheading of one of his victims, American journalist James Foley. 33-year-old Al-Shafi Al-Sheikh was found guilty of the charges by a federal jury in April. The jury concluded that he was part of an Islamic State cell nicknamed the Beatles for their British accents. The cell beheaded American hostages in Iraq and Syria. And the Senate's top Republican, Mitch McConnell, says the GOP may not win the Senate in November. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Less than 100 days from the midterm election, the Senate Minority Leader says Republicans may not win Senate control as many were expecting. There's a, probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. But I think when all it's said and done, it's all likely to have an extremely close Senate, either our side up slightly or their side up. Republicans are in a historically favorable political environment to reclaim the majority. That's as inflation soars and Biden's approval rating struggles around just 40 percent. But while the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy sounds confident... We'll win the majority and I'll be Speaker, yes. McConnell says the Senate race could go either way, adding... Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. McConnell on Thursday did not name any candidates, but several key Senate races are looking tight. In Pennsylvania, the Cook Political Report on Thursday changed its rating from toss-up to lean Democrat, as Republican Mehmet Oz struggles in polls against Democrats John Fetterman. And in Ohio, GOP candidate J.D. Vance leads Democrat Tim Ryan just by three points in the latest poll. That said, some Republicans have expressed confidence about a GOP majority in both chambers. Is bizarre just how, to, how out of touch the socialist Democrats are, and it's why I think come November we're going to see Republicans retake both houses of Congress. That's as a new poll finds more Republicans now want to vote in November after last week's FBI raid of former President Donald Trump's home. Iris Tao, NTD News. And while we wait for former President Trump's FBI raid affidavit to be redacted and possibly released, most onlookers are asking what could be found in that document that would justify such a search. Earlier today, I spoke with Article 3 Project founder and President Mike Davis for a look at the legal reasoning behind what we know so far about the search warrant and the circumstances surrounding it. Mike Davis, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, we may soon see a redacted version of the affidavit used to raid Trump's home. What new information do you expect to be unsealed at a minimum? I think that there's going to be minimal information that we're going to be, just be able to see, because I think that this judge and the Biden Justice Department know that they, uh, that they uh, erred as a matter of law in getting this warrant, and I think they're going to be covering their tracks. There's always the uh, the tendency of the government to over-redact uh, everything, and this judge clearly uh, violated the law by by uh, by ordering this home raid. He was biased, and he uh, ordered a fishing expedition. So I think there's going to be a cover-up. 
And do you think the full affidavit should be released? I do. I think I, I agree with President Trump. He was the target of the raid. He's the one who has the most to lose with the information in the raid, uh, within the affidavit, but he still wants this affidavit fully released. And I think it should be released. There is a heightened public interest in this case, and President Trump wants it out there. Let's get it out there. All right. Now, the DOJ says that amateur Internet sleuths could use the affidavit to identify FBI agents involved, thus chilling other witnesses and endangering them. What do you think? Is there reason for concern here? No, that's nonsense. This is a cover-up. They can absolutely re, uh, redact sources and methods, the names of the people who they used as informants or the agents who uh, did the investigation and the methods they used. They could, they could uh, redact that and they could still get out an affidavit with the, the American people so the American people can understand why the Biden Justice Department ordered this unprecedented, unnecessary and unlawful home raid of a former president. Now, Judge Bruce Reinhardt, who approved the search warrant, had recused himself from another case involving Trump just two months ago. So are you concerned about bias in this case? You've mentioned there's maybe issues there. Yeah, absolutely. That Judge Reinhardt, Magistrate Judge Reinhardt, uh, violated the United States Code, along with Canon 2 and 2A, by ordering this unprecedented, unnecessary, and unlawful home raid because he has a clear judicial bias. He just recused from Hillary, uh, Trump's lawsuit versus Hillary Clinton on June 22nd. He also has a 2017 Facebook post where he is personally trashing President Trump's integrity. They're under, he, he, has an, uh, he has an actual bias against President Trump at a minimum. He has an apparent bias against President Trump, and he should have recused. It is, it is mind-boggling that he ordered this raid when he just recused on June 22nd from that civil lawsuit. And you're saying that it's actually legal for Trump to have had the documents in question. Could you explain that reasoning? Yeah, it's uh, as the president of the United States, as the commander in chief, he had the absolute constitutional authority to declassify any record he wanted for any reason he wanted in any manner he wanted. And he did not have to jump through any hoops or get permission from anyone, no bureaucrat, no member of Congress. This is his constitutional authority as commander in chief and the Supreme Court confirmed that in a 1988 case, Department of the Navy versus Egan. Separately, there's this 2012 case decided by an Obama judge. It was the Judicial Watch case, uh, Tom Fitton Judicial Watch versus Bill Clinton, where he, uh, Bill Clinton had audio tapes of his presidency in his sock drawer. The Obama judge said that under the Presidential Records Act that President Clinton had the sole statutory authority to determine whether these are personal records that belong to Bill Clinton or presidential records that belong to the government and then get sent to the, almost certainly sent to Bill Clinton's library after it's categorized by the National Archives. So what we have here, these are not classified records, so there's no Espionage Act violation, and Trump can make these personal records, so they're not, there's no, there's no issue of destruction of government property, alter, alteration of government records. These are personal records. And so the last charge that they're looking at is obstruction. Well, you cannot, it's legally impossible to obstruct an investigation on non-crimes. This is a political witch hunt. Okay, and so what other avenues did the DOJ have to obtain these documents? And why, are, why did they take this course of action now, do you think? Well, I think they took this course of action because I think they know that President Trump declassified and made personal the uh, crossfire hurricane records related to Russian collusion hoax. And I think that the Obama, Biden, and Hillary regimes and the deep state knew that these documents that President Trump had in his possession, these declassified personal records he had, were very damaging to them. So they were going to do whatever it took to go get those records. So they went to a biased judge down in West Palm Beach. They waited several weeks. So they probably judge shopped, got the right judge, and uh, then uh, got this warrant. And the warrant is illegal on its face. It, it seeks four years of records from President Trump. It, it, that, that is a fishing expedition. And they did that as a pretext so they can go in and get these records that are politically damaging to the Obama, Biden, and Hillary regimes. So what do you think should happen next to ensure the integrity of the justice system and justice in this case? If I were President Trump's attorneys, I would file a Rule 41G 
motion to return the property under the federal rules of civil a criminal procedure as part of that motion you lay out all these legal arguments you lay out the recusal argument against magistrate judge bruce reinhardt <clears throat> you get the, the case moved you ask the chief judge of the southern district of florida to take the case or reassign it to a different judge maybe an article three judge instead of one of these magistrate judges who weren't presidentially appointed and senate confirmed like bruce reinhardt and get it to a real judge an Article Three judge and have them decide these legal issues up front related to attorney-client privilege, executive privilege going back 250 years to George Washington, these issues of the Presidential Records Act, these issues of how the president has the inherent constitutional authority as commander-in-chief to declassify anything he, he wants. President Trump did absolutely nothing wrong as a matter of law. There is no legal violation here. It is impossible for, the, for there to be a legal violation under the case law. All right, Mike Davis from Article 3 Project, thank you so much. Thank you. President Biden's pause on new oil and gas leases on federal lands is no longer valid. A judge permanently blocked Biden's ban from taking effect in 13 states. U.S. District Judge Terry Doty of Louisiana ruled Thursday that Biden's ban violated two federal laws. One is the Mineral Leasing Act, and the other is the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. He says Biden has no authority to pause the leases without going through Congress. The ruling applies to 13 states that challenged the Biden ban. Those are Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia. Biden's ban is still in effect in other states. The judge's ruling came a day after another court tossed out an earlier injunction against Biden's ban. And a group of military members blow the whistle on the Department of Defense. They asked Congress to investigate the department for denying their religious objection to the COVID-19 vaccine. But what can Congress do? NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Back in January, a federal court granted a temporary injunction to stop the U.S. Navy from firing dozens of Navy SEALs for their religious objections to the COVID-19 vaccine. In March, the court converted the injunction into a class action lawsuit. It protects about 4,000 members with religious objections. But Navy Commander Robert Green is taking additional action. On August 15, Green and eight other service members sent a six-page report to Congress. It provides evidence they were denied the right to refuse the emergency COVID-19 vaccine. We spent, you know, about a week building out all the evidence, making sure we're writing it all in a, as concisely as possible. It is a complicated issue, but making sure that it is something that can be readily understood by someone who's willing to sit down and read six pages. And if they want to see the evidence, the rest of it is all linked in the PDF that we submitted uh, for review by Congress. Green said he was sent home to work remotely, but he doesn't do much. Uh, I was banned from my building um, towards the beginning of January, right after the holiday, and was asked to, uh, to, to not show up unless I was willing to take it an emergency use authorized test. Did the Navy violate the injunction when it forced Green to work from home? I asked Green's attorney in the class action suit, Michael Berry. That's a gray area right now. And the reason that the Navy did that was to send a message to any unvaccinated service member that, you know, if you don't comply with this vaccine mandate, we're going to do these things to you that are detrimental to your career. Green sent the letter to Congress in January. For the most part, Congress as a whole has done little uh, to support the military with this particular vaccine mandate. When I released the uh, letter to the House and Senate Armed Services Committee back in January um, about religious discrimination in the military, not a whole lot was done uh, with that by Congress as a whole. But what can Congress do? Can you tell me whether or not Congress has any power to charge uh, the Department of Defense or other military officials who were involved in denying the religious exemption. Individual members can reach out to the Pentagon. They can ask uh, questions. They can, they can hold hearings and, you know, demand responses and answers. In terms of, you know, can Congress actually 
you know, enforce the law, so to speak, uh, you know, that's a little bit more difficult because obviously that would require a majority of Congress to, to act and it would require a vote. That can often be difficult uh, because of political realities. Green said in his 15 years of service, he has never experienced anything like this before. It's a problem that is not just about the vaccine mandate, but uh, I will say that there's been a, a, a politicization of the service um, at the highest levels. And in, in many cases, um, officers who should be leading and taking care of troops are looking out for their careers first and then everything else second. The U.S. Navy told NTD in an email that it doesn't comment on matters that are in litigation. NTD reached out to the Department of Justice, but they didn't get back to us before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Throughout the pandemic, the government has been buying COVID vaccines and treatments to give to people for free. Now, it no longer wants to foot the bill. So what does this mean for Americans? NTD's Colin Fredrickson brings us the story. The government plans to stop paying for COVID treatment. This will push the cost to patients and insurers. It's a good thing. Wayne Weingarten is a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. Weingarten says COVID-19 will be with us for a long time, so COVID treatment should be incorporated into the normal health care system. As for the cost of treatment... The question is going to vary from patients to patients depending upon insurance status and kind of coverage. Uh, there there could, certainly could be out-of-pocket costs you know, up to this point. 30 million people currently don't even have insurance coverage. They'd have to pay out-of-pocket. As for the others, they'd likely have to pay more than what the government paid, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Insurers and pharmacy benefit managers will have to negotiate with drug makers on prices, which will likely raise them. This could also mean billions in profits for vaccine makers. Pfizer, which developed a popular RNA vaccine with BioNTech, and Moderna, whose new vaccine that targets Omicron recently got approved in the UK, made a combined total of $79 billion in vaccine and treatment sales last year. That's all to the good, and that, you know, provide the incentives to continue uh, pushing uh, on the vaccine research portfolio. Wayne Weingarten from the Pacific Research Institute says this is positive for the broader society. It shows the viability of vaccine uh, in uh, research portfolios. It's going to incentivize continued uh, research into vaccines. And so there's all sorts of beneficial, uh, you know, health uh, beneficial health benefits that we're going to reap into the future. The Department of Health and Human Services said shifting the payment plan could take months. It's going to hold a planning session on August the 30th with pharmacies, drug makers, and state health departments. Alan Fredrickson, NTD News. And in other health news, the CDC has released a new report saying the polio virus has been circulating in the U.S. for months. That's after the nation's first polio case in 10 years was detected in a young adult last month. The CDC published a report this week saying they first found polio in New York State sewage as early as April. That report comes after a young adult in New York contracted a vaccine-derived polio strain and became paralyzed as a result. Vaccine-derived polio comes from the oral vaccine, which the U.S. stopped using over 20 years ago. New York City's health commissioner is urging unvaccinated children and adults to get the shot. And he told CBS that the virus is re-emerging because of anti-vaccine movements. But according to medical attorney Robert F. Kennedy Jr., it's too early to vaccinate everybody. Um, but 80, 70 to 80 percent of the polio in the world today is vaccine-strain polio, which means it did not come from wild polio. It came from the vaccine, ultimately. So... I think we really need to take another look at the polio vaccine and really look at all of the data um, before you start mass vaccinating. Incidentally, kids are already getting the polio vaccine. According to immunize.org, between three and four polio shots are required for elementary school kids in every state. Kennedy points out that polio was supposedly eradicated in 1979, but children still get the vaccine. According to the CDC, the New York patient contracted polio from someone who got the oral vaccine abroad in one of the countries that still uses them. Some of the vaccines that if you get it, it ends up in the sewage. 
that's how it spreads. That's why they have polio outbreaks in India and in Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Congo, because people are taking the vaccine and then it goes out and it gets in the sewage and it mutates. Kennedy suggests that independent scientists take another look at the polio vaccines and reassess the data they have to see whether vaccinating everyone against polio makes sense at this point. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. And looking now at abortions. Arizona today became the latest state to work toward enforcing a near total ban on abortions. The state's attorney general is making the case for why the state has the right to return to an 1864 state law. This as Kentucky just won a case to keep its abortion ban in place. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the details. Arizona could soon be the latest state to ban abortion as early as conception under a law that was first written in the 19th century before Arizona was officially granted statehood. If the court rules conservatively, the state's abortion laws will be even more extensive than the 15-week ban on abortion recently signed into law by Governor Ducey. Is it surprising at all that a state like Arizona, which has a such, such a mixed base of voters politics-wise, is working towards imposing restrictions on abortions? Well, what we've seen consistently in Arizona, regardless of who they're sending to Washington, is that the legislature and the governor is strongly pro-life. Over and over, they passed pro-life bills, including this year, where they passed a 15-week law, just in case that's all the Supreme Court did. Pima County Superior Court Judge Kelly Johnson was expected to hear arguments today from both Planned Parenthood attorneys and the state's attorney general, Mark Brnovich. The action in Arizona comes after earlier this week, Kentucky won a lawsuit brought by Planned Parenthood. Now most abortions in Kentucky are illegal. And in Georgia, a judge this week allowed a heartbeat law to remain in effect as a lawsuit that challenges the abortion restriction makes its way through the courts. Right now, there are 12 states that have banned nearly all abortions, although this number changes by the day. So there are a few states like Indiana that came in for a special session uh, I think there are a few more states we expect will probably enact life-affirming laws uh, in January. And then there are a few like South Carolina, West Virginia, that are uh, thinking about coming into a special session, may pass a law this fall. While many in America have pushed the message that abortion restrictions are outdated, some pro-life advocates tell us they believe the majority of people still cherish traditional values. And sometimes those values are looked down upon, sometimes they're mocked in Hollywood, and it can be easy for people to think that they don't matter. But for millions of Americans, they really do matter. They're foundational values and they're traditional values, and they really are at the core of who we are as a society. And they are very important to who we are as human beings. It's expected that five more states are on the way towards passing abortion restrictions in the months ahead. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And in Philadelphia, two pro-life citizens are suing the mayor. That's after he announced the city would provide half a million dollars to pay for abortions. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Pennsylvania is one of a number of states that has kept abortion legal. Under the Abortion Control Act, a woman can legally get an abortion up to the 23rd week of pregnancy. On August 4th, the mayor of Philadelphia announced the city was giving the Abortion Liberation Fund of PA a half a million dollars to pay for abortions. The organization provides emergency funding to anyone who can't afford an abortion, regardless of the reason. But an attorney at the Thomas More Society says the mayor can't use taxpayer money to pay for abortions. Under both federal law, the Hyde Amendment and the Pennsylvania Hyde Amendment, which is uh, a codification of the, Hyde, the federal Hyde Amendment in Pennsylvania law, um, both of which prohibit spending public tax dollars to pay uh, specifically for abortions, except in very limited circumstances, which are things like rape and incest and, and to save the life of the mother. Thomas King is special counsel at the Thomas More Society. He's representing two Philadelphia pro-life citizens who object to their taxes being used to pay for abortions. They sued the city and the mayor. King says Pennsylvania State can't pay for abortions, and so... We also suggest that the city of Philadelphia has no authority to do more than what the state of Pennsylvania could do and that, uh, that they're prohibited from doing that under the first-class city code and the Philadelphia Charter. 
So what does he want the court to do? Um, we're going to ask the court to order the uh, abortion liberation fund to pay that money back to the city of Philadelphia. And if that money is gone, uh, then we're going to ask the court um, to impose a surcharge against the mayor, the controller, and the treasurer of Philadelphia who, who allowed this to happen. A spokesperson for the mayor's office told NTD in an email they couldn't comment due to the pending litigation. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And heading north to New Jersey, the largest teachers union there is facing backlash for a new ad. It appears to label parents who speak out at school board meetings as extremists. The New Jersey Education Association posted this ad on YouTube on August 15th titled Same Thing. The group is New Jersey's largest teachers union with 200,000 members. We don't agree on everything in New Jersey, but we all agree that our kids deserve a world-class education. So when extremists start attacking our schools, that's not who we are. People who only want to fight to score political points should take that somewhere else. New Jersey is set to begin a controversial new sex education standard this fall. It would require public schools to incorporate LGBTQ-themed content into their K-5 curricula. It expects students to define terms such as sex assigned at birth, gender identity, cisgender, and transgender by the end of fifth grade. The ad shows photos of parents protesting at school board meetings with two news headlines. One titled, Some New Jersey Schools Under Siege, and the other called, Don't Say Gay Bill Introduced by New Jersey State Senator. One of the photos was taken in August 2021 at a Nevada school board meeting. Parents there protested against the school district's COVID-19 mask mandate. Another photo depicts a man yelling during a May 2021 meeting in Georgia after the school board rescinded a resolution against the teaching of critical race theory. Republican lawmakers criticized the ad, saying the union is out of touch with parents' concerns. The New Jersey Republican Party wrote, If protecting our children from New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy's insane sex ed standards is extreme, then we wear this as a badge of honor. The ad by NJEA has gained over 90,000 views on YouTube, and the comments section is turned off. And now over in Washington State, an 80-year-old woman has been banned from her local YMCA swimming pool for confronting a transgender employee in the women's shower room. 80-year-old Julie Jaman is a longtime resident of Port Townsend, Washington State, and had been swimming at the Olympic Peninsula YMCA's pool for 35 years. But the facility banned her for life following an incident in the women's shower room on July 26th. In a Quillette podcast earlier this month, Jaman said she heard a man's voice and then saw a man in a woman's swimsuit just outside her shower. As I looked at him, I was just stunned. And I said, do you have a penis? And he said, it's none of your business. And I said, you need to get out of here right now. To my other side, in my vision came a staff person in a red shirt and I said to her, get him out of here. And she said, without skipping a beat, you're discriminating and you are out of the pool forever and I am calling the cops. The person Jamon confronted was Clementine Adams, a YMCA daycare worker who identifies as a woman. Adams was in charge of the girls and was escorting them to the bathroom. The YMCA confirmed the incident and responded with a statement, saying in part, The patron has had several incidents where she has repeatedly violated the WISE code of conduct. The YMCA cited Washington state law in saying that they allow the use of gender-segregated facilities based on an individual's gender identity. Jamon says she's being denigrated for having normal and natural instincts as a woman. According to the Epic Times, she said, this was pretty much the typical scenario where rapes happen and children are molested, and yet somehow I'm the bad guy. A string of sexual assaults on women and girls have been reported at YMCAs across the U.S. in just the past few years. Several incidents involved young male employees and underage girls. Jamon and her supporters held a rally against the YMCA's ban on Monday. Online videos show transgender activists disrupting her speech, shouting, trans rights are human rights. Women's rights are human rights! Trans rights are human rights! 
Reporting by Allison Lee, NCD News. Coming up, surveillance video shows a flash mob of people looting and vandalizing a convenience store in Los Angeles County. And Michael Jordan's 1998 NBA Finals jersey will soon be up for auction. And TD's Dave Martin has the details on what's expected to fetch a hefty price after this short break. Welcome back. A coalition of state governments is pushing back against the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock. They're saying the firm is putting its political agenda over the interests of clients and even U.S. national security. A group of 19 state attorneys general sent a strongly worded letter to BlackRock CEO Larry Fink. It says BlackRock is imposing an ESG engagement and voting strategy across all assets under their management, with climate issues being one of BlackRock's biggest focuses. The letter says BlackRock is converting states' investment portfolios to ESG-focused funds. The letter demanded an end to BlackRock's political agenda. And NTD's Don Moss spoke with Will Hild in more detail about ESG and BlackRock. He's the executive director at Consumers Research. Will, thanks for coming on. To, you know, to start off, can you explain to our audience what exactly is ESG? Certainly. Well, ESG is an acronym that stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it's billed by its supporters as simply a style of investing, similarly to value investing or momentum investing. But in effect, what it really is is a stalking horse for fund managers to inject their personal politics into the operations of U.S. corporations. I see. Okay, just elaborate for us a little bit. What is ESG intended for? Can you give us a practical example? Certainly. Well, the idea is that investors will make more money over the long term by taking into account a number of different factors, you know, environmental, social, and, and, and governance factors around things like net zero targets, you know, the idea of decarbonizing uh, the economy or around social issues such as abortion or uh, LGBTQ issues. But what this allows is fund managers can use, use ESG as a cover for injecting their own personal politics. And really specifically, let's take the E for example. Uh, investment managers who are managing an ESG portfolio would say to a company, listen, uh, we're not going to invest in the company or we're going to even vote against your management or vote against your pay packages unless you decarbonize your company. As a concrete example, last year, probably the most infamous, is that uh, major investment firm BlackRock helped vote on three radical environmentalists to the board of ExxonMobil, which, of course, is the nation's largest oil and gas recovery uh, company. And the stated goal of these radical board, new board members was to get Exxon out of the business of oil and gas recovery because of those ESG goals. I see. And, and if I'm an everyday American, why should I care about this? That is a great question. Well, following on from that Exxon example, because of those three new board members, it was reported by the Wall Street Journal in October that Exxon was considering of divesting itself of two of their newest, largest projects overseas, one in Mozambique and one in Vietnam, and that these would have to be sold on the global market, probably to another large player, such as PetroChina. So this is a direct effect on the consumer because it's oil and gas, in, in case of Exxon, it's oil and gas uh, uh, that would otherwise come to the United States that now is probably going to go to a foreign competitor. This raises prices at the pump for the consumer, and it raises prices in a number of different industries, at the grocery store, uh, at, at, the, at, the, at the supermarket. Um, all of these are places where ESG has an effect on the consumer through higher prices and fewer options of, of goods. Now, your organization came out with a report. It's called BlackRock Crushing America Within. What does that mean? That's a great question. Well, BlackRock is the nation's largest investment management firm. They manage over $10 trillion of assets, and a lot of that is actually public money. Uh, like I said, local, state, and federal pensions. And they use that to push their radical left-wing agenda on corporate America. And as I noted before, that raises costs for consumers and hurts the economy. So the companies do worse. The portfolios that BlackRock manages on behalf of other people do worse. And most importantly for us, a consumer protection group, 
it raises prices for consumers, so consumers do worse. So it's a lose-lose-lose for everyone except for BlackRock. And who is pushing back against this? Well, you're starting to see a coalition form. Uh, state treasurers, state AGs, and governors are starting to take action. You're seeing groups like us push back and Nate call out uh, Larry Fink and BlackRock for what they're doing. We're in the middle of an ongoing multi-million dollar consumer awareness campaign running TV, radio, and billboard ads. Uh, we're going to continue to do that because we think that is so crucial to consumers' well-being. They, this is probably the number one issue they need to know about right now is Larry Fink and BlackRock and, and what they're doing to undermine consumer interests. Now, if we're not pushing it back, pushing back against this, what would be the final result? It's a great question. Ultimately, ESG is forced austerity on the consumer at the behest of Wall Street. The targets that Larry Fink and BlackRock want to push on these companies, these net zero targets, would obliterate their business model, would make it impossible for them to operate and you know, get them out of oil and gas, which right now produces 60% of our electricity in the United States. It is not an overstatement to say that if Larry Fink and, and BlackRock get their way, we're talking about figurative and maybe literal national suicide. And so it, it's very important that this get called out and be pushed back on. Now, this might be a sensitive issue, but is ESG pushing the U.S. into a sort of socialist society, in your opinion? It's a great question. I think what, what's happening, I, I think there's some truth to that. Um, it's definitely undermining our national interest against the Chinese Communist Party. One issue we also bring up in, in this report is that BlackRock is, is increasingly entangled with the Chinese Communist Party. And they don't push any of this ESG nonsense over there. Instead, they funnel hundreds of billions of dollars of American investments into CCP-owned companies. So not only does it hurt consumers here domestically, but it hurts the competitiveness of our companies globally. And so it props up the Chinese Communist Party and it hurts our economy here in the United States. And as you noted, it, it is building the foundation for personalized ESG scores. You're already starting to see some, uh, the, the beginnings of that. And absolutely, we could live in a world where you know, your bank and your insurance company or your investment management company dictates to you how you should live using an ESG score. And turning now to California, a 7-Eleven was mobbed by a large crowd in Los Angeles County. People can be seen looting and vandalizing the convenience store with spectators watching and filming from the parking lot. NTD's Jason Blair has more. A flash mob took over an El Segundo 7-Eleven in L.A. County. The Los Angeles police released this surveillance footage in hopes to gather more leads on identifying the suspects. In the footage, you can see that it's absolute chaos. People are rushing in, looting the shelves. There's probably about 100 people that can be seen ransacking the store. Some jump over the counter and start throwing items into the crowd. Spectators can be seen outside filming with their phones. Everything from snacks to lotto tickets were emptied out. And unfortunately, the whole store ended up getting trashed. The police said that the employee on duty ran and hid in the back room. So far, no arrests have been reported. Detectives were able to gather fingerprints at the store. A Los Angeles police spokesman said they are offering a $50,000 reward for help identifying the people seen looting in the videos. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. A California bill that would end faithless electors during presidential elections is now awaiting the governor's signature. However, experts say that this will strengthen the two-party system, which is something our forefathers never intended. A California bill would end faithless electors in the state's presidential voting. But two experts said that the current influence of political parties on electors was not what the founding fathers intended. A faithless elector is somebody who is pledged to vote um, for a certain candidate for president and then gets to the place to vote and decides not to. Along with ending faithless electors, the bill would remove fines and punishments currently outlined in state law. While California has never reported any cases of faithless electors in its history, the issue has become more prominent since the 2016 presidential election. Robert McWhorter, a criminal attorney and constitutional historian, told NDD News that since California is a Democratic stronghold, the bill might not do much for the state. 
That's because, he says, political parties now have much more influence over electors. Over time, the political parties got a hold of it, and they passed statutes in states, like what California's proposing, that requires electors to follow the will of the party, and the party controls the electors, and they're not independent. The proposed law would require that electors pledge their votes to the winning presidential and vice presidential candidates. Electors who fail to do so will have their vote vetoed, be removed from their position, and replaced. But according to McWhorter, the current way the country votes for the president is not what the founding fathers intended. That the framers of the Constitution actually intended the electors to have more independence. But the framers of the Constitution never intended there to be political parties, at least when they wrote the Constitution. The idea was you vote for people who then would make the decision to be presidents. The Founding Fathers established the idea of electors as a compromise between electing the president through Congress versus a popular vote. This was intended to keep dishonest people from becoming president. Paul Engel, author and founder of the Constitution Study, told NTD News that the electors today are chosen based on a, quote, political slate. He added that most state electors will vote for the party that wins in the statewide election. In the past, when electors were truly free to vote their conscience, back before political parties took over the process, it was more of an issue from the standpoint of it. It happened more, but it was less of an issue because there wasn't the expectation that if I choose you to be my elector, I'm assuming you have enough information and integrity to vote for the best candidate Kind of like I'm electing a representative for, the, for Congress. Only today, as we have this politicized partisan process, does the idea of faithful elector really mean anything. In 2021, Democratic Senator Bill Dodd introduced the proposed law, Senate Bill 103. It has received unanimous bipartisan support by both the State Assembly and the Senate. It is now awaiting Governor Gavin Newsom's signature or veto. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Michael Jordan's jersey from the 1998 NBA Finals will soon be up for auction at Sotheby's. According to the auction house, this is from the uniform Jordan wore while scoring 33 points in their Game 1 loss at Utah. Unbeknownst to most at the time, the thrilling playoff series would be Jordan's final one with Chicago. The series is best remembered for Jordan's heroics at the end of Game 6. The future Hall of Famer scored the game's final four points, including the iconic series-winning shot with five seconds left. While in between shots, he made a great play to steal the ball from an unsuspecting Karl Malone. The championship marks Chicago's third in a row and sixth in an eight-year period. Meanwhile, Jordan was named Finals MVP for his sixth time. Sotheby's is expecting to fetch a seven-figure amount for this piece of history with the bidding starting on September 6th. And in Little League World Series baseball news, the boy who fell from his bunk bed earlier this week at the dormitory complex in Williamsport is now able to sit up, eat, and walk with support. 12-year-old Easton Oliverson is a pitcher and outfielder for the Snow Canyon team out of Santa Clara, Utah. He fell out of his bunk bed in his sleep early Monday morning and fractured his skull. He was then airlifted to a children's hospital. His father, who's an assistant coach on the team, said he was awakened at 1.30 in the morning with the news. Doctors originally told him Easton had 30 minutes to live because of pressure on his brainstem. The 12-year-old underwent surgery to stop the bleeding and was put into a medically induced coma. Amazingly, he survived. By Wednesday, he was no longer sedated, and on Thursday, he was moved out of the ICU. The family set up an Instagram account called Miracles for a Tank to provide updates. A post says, quote, the Oliverson family firmly believes in the power of miracles through faith. The Snow Canyon team is the first squad ever from the state of Utah to make it to the Little League World Series. In their first game on Friday, Easton will be replaced by his 10-year-old brother, Brogan. And finally, in NFL news, Tampa Bay coach Todd Bowles was non-committal Thursday on the return date for quarterback Tom Brady, saying, quote, there's no definitive date for me. Bowles had previously said Brady would be back after the team's second preseason game, which is Saturday. He added that the absence was pre-planned in advance of training camp. 
Brady has been away since August 11 for what has been described as personal reasons. Brady had previously announced his retirement earlier this offseason in February, only to announce his return six weeks later. The 45-year-old is set to be the oldest starting quarterback in league history when he lines up under center this fall. Tampa Bay begins the season on September 11 in Dallas. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, the Finnish Prime Minister is under scrutiny after a video surfaced of her partying with friends. She says she's taken a drug test. And major brands that left Russia are facing trademark issues, including knockoffs and unauthorized imports. And they're not likely to get a solution anytime soon. That and more here on NTD News. Prime Minister Sana Marin said today she had taken a drug test and vowed she had never used illegal drugs. It comes in the wake of video footage that showed her partying with friends. Video clips of Marin partying with well-known Finnish influencers and artists began circulating on social media this week, and they were soon published by several media outlets in Finland and abroad. Marin said her ability to perform her duties remained unimpaired during the night in question, and that she would have left the party had she been required to work. The 36-year-old had faced calls to do a drug test from politicians in her government coalition, as well as from the opposition. Marin, who became the world's youngest serving government leader in 2019, said she spends her free time with friends just like others her age, and that she intends to continue being the same person as before. And after the Russia-Ukrainian war started, well-known companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's pulled back from Russia in response to investor and public pressure. But their brands have largely stayed behind. Western firms like Coca-Cola and McDonald's have quit Russia. As for their brands, though, that's not quite so clear-cut. Such companies now face years battling knockoffs and unauthorized imports. In most countries, that would mean swift legal action. In Russia, it's not so certain that authorities support Western firms which chose to leave. Rospatent, Russia's intellectual property agency, is receiving a slew of applications involving Western trademarks. That's according to analytics firm Clarivate, which tracks the filings. Normally, they'd be expected to reject anything too similar to existing brands. But Moscow adopted a decree this spring allowing firms to use patents from countries deemed unfriendly. Russia also now permits so-called parallel imports, grey market shipments of everything from feminine hygiene products to footwear. Coca-Cola has largely failed to get a judge to back its action against unofficial imports of its drinks. It also faces competitors like Fantola with names very similar to its own brands. Maker Chernogolovka Golovka says it's already won the legal battle over that and is doing nothing to mislead consumers. Other firms like German confectioner Haribo and US sportswear firm New Balance want to stop moves to use their brand names, only written in Russia's Cyrillic alphabet. Meanwhile, McDonald's Golden Arches logo could still be seen at some of its former outlets months after the burger chain left. Experts say all such problems would be relatively easy to tackle in normal times. Right now, though, there is little that seems normal. In Paris, one doctor has taken a different approach to medicine using plants. Following the old ways of Galenic preparations, he treated people and communities across the globe by exploring nature and traditions. This approach brought him results he didn't expect. NTD's France correspondent David Vives met him at his Paris office. Far away from modern medicine, professor and medical doctor Jean-Pierre Willem has explored a world of its own, the natural medicine. Willem has specialized in treating patients with distal plants, galenic preparations and essential oils for about 60 years. This 84-year-old Frenchman has traveled the globe and worked as doctor, surgeon, gardener, anthropologist, and paleoanthropologist. 
It's a wide range of scientific domains that he inherited from his teacher, German doctor and Nobel Prize laureate, Dr. Albert Schweitzer. In his 20s, Wilhelm was Schweitzer's last assistant. Schweitzer opened a hospital in Africa and is famous for his service to others as he carried out his personal philosophy that he called reverence for life. Following in his footsteps, Wilhelm created the non-profit Médecins au pieds nus or Barefoot Doctors Association. He intervened mostly in deprived areas of third world countries. We collected all the plants that would be beneficial to health and I made gelenic preparations, tinctures, syrups, essential oils and so on. And the association asks us to show our bare feet. That's what a man must have when he's living amidst nature. One of his remarkable memories was an outbreak of tropical ulcer he managed to quell in African villages. In Rwanda, there are many, many young people who were affected by this germ. It attacked the lower limbs and attacked the flesh and the bones. It was unbearable. Some people committed suicide, so I was instructed to cut off their legs altogether, and for me this was very painful. I thought about it, and Eureka, I remembered the mummies. How were mummies preserved for 5,000 years? Well, quite simply, they used to apply aromatic oils. Now we use essential oils. Well, that's what I did. I distilled myself some eucalyptus radiata oil, and I put three drops on the wound. And after three weeks, there was no more infection and swelling. It was a success. He says he always made use of the local plants wherever he was based. And he paid close attention to old traditions, as they provided him answers to find treatments. All countries have specific traditions. When you can tell a tradition is positive, then there is something scientific about it. The science recognizes the tradition. And when you suppress a tradition or a ritual, it's always wrong because then it gets automatically replaced by something else which is harmful or less efficient. Men get used to their rituals. If you replace those with something else, it won't carry the same intensity. Willem currently works on a new book on what he calls a major challenge for science, proving the existence of God. He says religion and faith are a private experience which cuts them off from scientific observation. But the areas of the brain that are active during meditation and prayer have given us some clues. If you study the human emotions, you study the limbic brain, in which you find all the automisms of the vegetative system, among which are the big religious and emotional ones. So the religious belief has a material existence. If we have to summarize, it is innate. When we talk about genetics, and from then on, the transcendence is an objective reality. Willem says his book will soon be released in English. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.